Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Experience the thrill of the race with Scalextric. Proud sponsors of the Motorsport Podcast. Throughout the history of motor racing, the drivers have been the stars always in the headlines. But their performance depends on some brilliant engineers. This Motorsport Podcast series explores what it takes to handle the greatest drivers in the sport by talking to some of the greatest engineers. The podcast series is brought to you in association with Scalextric, and we're joined today by Tony Southgate. During a long and successful career, which began in the 1960s, Tony has designed and engineered some of the sport's most successful racing cars in a wide range of categories. In 1968, his All-American Racers Eagle won the Indy 500. In 1974, his Shadow won the Can-Am Championship. And his Jaguars, XJR9 and XJR12, won the Le Mans 24 hours twice. In Formula One, he worked with BRM, Lotus, Shadow and Arrows. While away from circuit racing, he created a new rally car for Ford. In the next hour or so, we will try to cover at least some of this man's extraordinary career. Tony, welcome and thank you for joining us. Welcome to you as well. Look, I want to start by a really simple question, which is how important is it actually for an engineer like you to nurture a good relationship with a racing driver? Well, obviously, my, my era spans, as you say, from beginning of the 60s, right through to 2000 or so. And obviously there was a dramatic change over that that period of time. In the very early days, it was a bit more basic and primitive, I suppose you could say. And now, of course, it's super sophisticated and communicating with the drivers is still still much the same. It's just that there's more knobs to press and fiddle around with and, uh, and they go to phenomenal lengths because you're after tenths of a second all the time. Uh, well, we were always up to tens of a second, but uh, they tend to be bigger tens. But in the early days, it, it was more of a, uh, you had a sort of like a, a more of a friendship with the driver. It wasn't too technical because the cars weren't that technical, really. I mean, you had the same sort of things to adjust and fiddle around with. The tyres were very small, so the tyres didn't come into it so much. Whereas now, of course, they're phenomenally important. Uh, so there's a big difference there. So the feedback from the driver about tyres and all that sort of thing was very little. I mean, you just had wet tires and dry tires, basically. But that so changed as soon as the slick era came along in the so uh, you know, 60s, 70s. When you got to the 70s, uh, I say if you start at 1970 period, which is when I was at BRM, uh, then the feedback became much more important because uh, you had these say very wide slick tires which transmitted uh, phenomenal sort of loads and information to the driver, and you relied on the communication between the two of you. Uh, some drivers were were fantastic, and other drivers they didn't seem to make much difference uh, because they uh, they didn't have a, what you might have called a more of technical flair. They just drove, got in and drove the cars. As several said, I, well, "The only thing I can do is drive. I've got a talent for driving. I can't do anything else." And that wasn't uncommon, amazing as it may sound. But of course, with the competition, I mean, there's always been competition, but with the pressure from all this higher tech, the uh, drivers had to become more technical themselves. And, and you did get into situations where you'd have quite lengthy conversations over uh, setups and change and what we're going to do tomorrow and all that sort of business. So it did change quite a lot as time went on. Basically, I think it was the advent of the slicks that really made a big difference, and wings, of course. Now, when you were at BRM, you had Pedro Rodriguez on the team. Who oh, yes. was one of my boyhood heroes. How technical was Pedro? I, I always imagined that he was just so quick and didn't really get too involved in, in the engineering. Well, that's correct, really. He, uh, he had massive charisma. He's very popular, mainly because he, was, uh, he wasn't a fussy driver. He just got on with it, got in the car and drove it. And he was being a small 
compact little man. You can make a super little car around him. And it was not demanding at all in terms of like technical adjustments and meetings. In fact, you rarely had meetings. You just chatted as you went along. And I, he would feed me information. He'd say, well, it's a bit sort of understeer or that. And I'd make some adjustments. And he'd say, oh, that's good. That's better. And that was it. He rarely said it was worse. And he just said, oh, it's the best car I've ever driven. He said, don't touch it. Things like that. You are obviously, from the design engineer's point of view, you're trying to go a bit quicker each time. So you're trying to adjust and find a bit more speed. But, uh, well, classic example is uh, we were qualifying one race. It'd be 970, somewhere like Spain. In qualifying, he was about fifth. Uh, this is during practice. And I said, well, you're running fifth. So we need to see if we can get a bit more speed. I get up the grease. Don't worry. Don't worry. He says, I'll overtake them all on the first lap. And that was his attitude. He'd rather save his effort for the race rather than hurt himself in pra- uh, you know, in qualifying. And, that, and that's, what, that's what happened. He would go out and he invariably would gain a few spa- uh, places. And that was his approach. That BRM was a very good car. You, you, ha- you had a lot of reliability problems with it. Can you tell me about that? Because <laughs> you, you had a V12 engine. Yes, well, I was quite familiar with the old V12s. I'd come across a month. Several occasions at, the, at Lola, we had the Honda V12 and Dan Gurney's, he had his own V12, of course. In the case of BRM, he's actually, he was the better of the 12s because one, it was very light. It was basically the same weight as a, a DFV, which is very impressive. And it was only two inches longer than a DFV, which is equally impressive and very compact. The only problem is to, to achieve this, everything was whittled down to the minimum. So bearings were a meter or two shorter than they should be and all that sort of thing. The result was it's marginal on a lot of things, especially the lubrication, the oil system is very critical. And when I got there, uh, they'd been blowing up engines quite regular. The oil system did look a bit primitive, basic. So we started having a go at that. And this is in 1970. Give you an idea, we'd been throwing rods through the running of the bearings, uh, the main bearings on the on the. Conrad. And um, I decided for the next race, which was Spa, I put a ginormous oil tank on it, a great big one with a massive airspace, much bigger than we'd run to, and very vertical. Quite an ugly thing, actually. Just a great big rectangular lump. And I put a massive feed. And when I say massive, it was, in old language, it's an inch and a quarter bore uh, tube from the bottom of the, the oil tank, the pickup point, straight into the oil pump, which is alongside only about 18 inches further forward. Uh, straight in, and we on top of that, we also boosted the oil pressure on the pump. And blow me, it went out and it won the race. Uh-huh. If you may have smart, it never stopped. It didn't blow up. Everybody was expected to blow up because he went around really quick. And he was super. He was just, this was Pedro, of course. And he was stunning. And he just went from start to finish, no problems. And uh, we had problems after that, funny enough. But that one, it didn't miss a beat. And Mate, the biggest improvement was this enormous great oil tank and the oil system. But there were other problems which uh, uh, related, especially the following year in, in uh, 71, where we're, the car was actually a better car in Sydney. That was the Type 160. It was quicker there. We led a, a lot of races and, well, we won a, a couple and finished second quite often. And I did go through a spat, which is down to me, I must admit. Uh, when the coil failed. I think we were running second on three occasions, the damn car stopped, uh, and the coil had gone. And we, in the first instance, it was, oh, it's the Lucas coil, one of those cheap Lucas coils that's, <laughs> that's let us down. But then it did the second time, and I was, oh, right, this is, we had another look, piddle around, and then it did the third time. By then, I realized, oh, oh there's a big problem. And what I'd done, I'd attached the coil to the roll bar stay, which is directly... The V, uh, the roll bar stay went down the V of the engine. So it's very convenient. Just put the coil on the stay. It only went a few inches to, uh, to the distributor. So it's, it looked really good, very neat. But uh, the stay bolted to the gearbox. So it went right from the driver's head, if you like, to the gearbox. What I didn't realize then, it was, it was picking up resonance from the gearbox, like a vibration going through the stay from the gearbox. And uh, it was breaking the internals of the coil. So so I tweaked it at the third stage. I thought, oh, I'll be executed if I don't do something here. So I totally repositioned it, put in a little pot on the top of the cylinder, and we didn't have any trouble. So that was down to me. So we lost some good results there because of a tough problem. But those are, those are just two great examples of the kind of work that you were doing back then. I mean, uh, they sound like really simple things, but of course, yeah, you've got to get them right. 
Let's talk about Dan Gurney, can we? Because oh, yes. I sort of felt that that must have been almost like going to university for you in the late 60s, working with Dan, because not only was he a wonderful guy, but he was also a very competent engineer, wasn't he? Oh, yes. Yeah, he, uh, when I went to uh, AAI in the States, in, in California there, uh, that was my first job when I was the, the chief designer up to then, all my jobs, I've been like the assistant designer, uh, or in the early days, just the, the draftsman who drew the bits. Uh, and Dan uh, was like—he was like a frustrated designer, but he wasn't—he wasn't like John Surtees, who's also like a frustrated designer engineer. He was easier with it. He—he he, he quite happy worked along with you and appreciated what you were doing and joining. He wouldn't try to dictate at all. He'd like to uh, chat to you about it, things like that, and he would uh, totally accept really what, what I'd want to do, uh, assuming it sounded uh, logical to him. But he was, yeah, he loved tinkering. He was a tinkerer. Perhaps if he hadn't tinkered so much, he might have been even more successful because he was the type that would like, when it got to the tracks, he would like decide whether he wanted this anti-roll bar, change that anti-roll bar and that type of thing, those springs, because uh, he was driving the car and he had sufficient knowledge and feedback uh, to tell him what he thought needed doing, and he was invariably right. But he would actually sometimes things like I remember on one this is in a Can-Am race because we raced Can-Am cars and uh, Indy cars. Uh, he uh, he changed the anti-robber completely, the front anti-robber on the start grid. <laughs> you know, it never actually ran it, and he thought, "Well, a bit of a gamble." But that was Dan would do things like that because obviously it was his show; he could do what he wanted. If he wanted to change, he changed it. So uh, that was perhaps against him. But to work for, him, he was a fabulous bloke. I loved him. I loved him. And you won the Indy 500 in 1968. I mean, that, that's surely a day you'll never forget, but a completely different discipline, an oval, compared to all the, all the circuit racing that you'd done before. I had come across, uh, been working with Indy cars for some time, because at Lola we made Indy cars, and, and the Lola won, you remember, with Graham Hill driving it. And before that, I had a small stint at... Uh, Brabans in the very early days, and they made the Indy car, which I did most of the drawing of. So I was quite familiar. The what I wasn't familiar with is working at the tracks. I'd never been there, and of course it was very different. And they were totally obsessed in those days with tire stacking, you know, different di diameter tires. They would mix you know, big ones on the outside, small ones on the inside, all that sort of thing. And they measured the growth with temperatures. And they, they were quite fanatical about that. That was all quite new to me. But Dan would do all that because he knew what he wanted. And that was the big difference there. The rest of the car was no problem. Tell me a bit about working with John Surtees. You've mentioned him a couple of times. And, of course, another remarkable man, not only a motorcycle world champion, but a Formula One world champion. A lot of people say that he was difficult to work with. How, how, would, you, how would you sum up your work with him? Uh, well, he had a very close relationship with Lola's way back. Because when I first joined Lola, I joined in beginning January 62, Eric, Eric Broadley of Lola's, had just built a Formula One car. It, it just was literally, it hadn't turned a wheel when I got there. And he's had the four-cylinder Climax in, because this is before the V8 was available. And it was just there in the workshop, all covered in a, a box, which I thought was fantastic. I thought I landed in heaven. He got a Formula One car, because nobody knew about it. It was secret. And John drove it. John said he drove it. And bow makers were running it. And uh, I went to a, a couple of tests, you know, because you didn't really go to races in, that, in those days, unless you're right, the, almost the owner or the driver, of course. But we went to a couple of tests at, at Silverstone and things. So that was quite interesting. But he, he was a, what you call a technical driver. He liked to fiddle and he liked to know what we're doing and why. And Because uh, he was learning from the engineers, remember. And uh, yeah, they'd say, or if it's a bigger anti oil bar, and say, oh, that might affect the understeeing or sort of thing. And he grabbed it. He said, oh, yes, it has, it has made a little difference, but it's better in traction and things like that. So you'd pick it up from him. He, he loved that. He loved it. And I worked with him for years, for years, right up to, well, he was at BRM when I joined him in uh, seven, uh, 69, 70. He obviously was too technical. Obviously, he was difficult to work for, not for me. He may be for other people, uh, but he really liked the Lola collaboration because it was like his team, in effect, well, his company. He wasn't really. He was. He was just like uh, it was beneficial to, to Lola's and to Eric, of course, to have 
someone like Surtees on board because he was a superstar and he would drive whatever cars he wanted to. He'd drive the Formula 2 or the Can-Am car or whatever, uh, Formula 1, uh, which he did. So he got very good feedback because he was like his team. And uh, he did a lot of the, remember the Can-Am races. Uh, yeah, I didn't find him difficult at all. It's different. And he would talk technical and, uh, and it was always a bit secret, you know. Nobody's hearing what we're saying, all that sort of thing, uh, which is quite funny. But uh, uh, no, no, no problem. I've heard other people say that, but perhaps see, that's how he appeared to us young team members. Perhaps, perhaps what they meant was that he was very demanding, <laughs> uh, which is which is. Oh what yeah, yeah, yeah. He demanding, but you expect that because, uh, to be quite honest, it's the drivers that motivate the designers. Often they'll come in and say, oh, that's a load of rubbish. I don't like that. We want you to do and all that sort of thing. So you've got to do something. I mean, once, I mean, this goes back to a good old Pedro who said, when I was at BRM, I was, they wanted me to have to, we just done the Formula 1 guy. It wasn't hardly run. And then, and, uh, and, um, Lou Stanley wanted me to do any, a, a Canon car. I didn't really want to do a Canon car, though I was very familiar with them from Lola's, et cetera. He thought he was going to make a lot more money if he did it. And so uh, reluctantly, I did it. And, it wasn't really, it was never finished. The car was about 95% finished. And we shipped it off to Canada and left the mechanics to finish it off, set it up and run it. And it, it was horrible. It didn't work <laughs> at all. Um, and eventually, at the end of the year, Stanley just thought, oh, it's the driver. So he said, put Pedro. And Pedro had a driver in one of the races. No, none of us were there. We just let him get on with it. It was a very, very low budget sort of operation, really. And it, anyway, when he came back after the race, he came to me and, and he came up to me in the office and he says, you know that Canam car? He said, that's the worst car I've ever driven. I was so embarrassed because I haven't known it very well. I said, well, it didn't really get finished. We didn't have the right this and the right that. It didn't have the right tyres. I was supposed to have wider wheels. I've got narrow wheels and all that sort of thing, which was true. And so I was so embarrassed. I said, I'll fix it. So I had a big go at it and changed it all. And we then changed the names. It was, used to be called the 154. It became then the 167. And then it, it visually looked a bit different as well. And we had a wing on the back by then, of course, all the rear body were changed. But I, I widened the track out to maximum because the body was bigger than the, the, the track because we had ended up with these little wheels that were two inches narrower than the, what the car was designed for. So it all looked as though the body was bigger than the, the wheelbase and track, which is not a very pleasant thing to to see actually it looked <laughs> anyway uh we i corrected all that corrected all the other thing and the car was very quick it's just the total opposite it was good then very good and uh, we were doing just the inter-series race in in uh, in europe we just had one car and one engine and a truck and a trailer and that was it yeah. they ship it off and they go and win these races uh driven by different redmond drove it Howden won it uh drove uh, i think they both won races in it but uh pedro never got to drive that car that's the car, ironically, he would have driven. There was a race at Norris Ring. It, the car was due to go there, and literally about Wednesday or Thursday of that the week, the car was due to leave something like Thursday night. I got a message from the engine department that we only had one engine, a Chevy, which BRM had tuned up and whatever. It got damaged on the dyno. Uh, something wrong. I don't know what it was. Nothing. They couldn't fix it anyway. They said it's damaged, so we'll have to pull out of the scratch from the race. That had just uh, literally uh, half an hour later, I got a phone call uh, from Pedro saying, uh, you know, how's it all going? I said, well, a bit of a problem and disaster, unfortunately. We're, we're going to have to pull out of the race because the bloody engines failed. And he, his response, so he said, well, never mind. I've been offered to driving a Ferrari for 1,500 quid. He says, good money, so I'll take that. And he got killed in it. He went off there, and uh, I don't know what happened in the race itself, but got involved with something, and he crashed and was dead. So if the bloody engine had blown up on the dyno or what it was, he'd have driven the BRM, and instead of killing himself, he'd have won the race. So a very tricky story, that. But it's true. Tragic. While we're talking about um, engineering great drivers, can you tell me, is it possible to have too much information from them as well as not enough? I'm interested in that because running a racing car can be quite a, a complex procedure. And have you, have you had drivers who've just given you too much information? Uh, no, not, not drivers, because you, take, you, you absorb and take note of what you want i mean if they come in and there's something that uh, 
you think, well, that's a bit trivial. I'm not worried about I'll worry about the big bit. You know, it's understanding into that slow corner and that's costing us speed. So you have a go at that. It may mean you compromise and muck it up somewhere else a little bit, but as long as the overall effect is a better lap time and the driver's happy with the balance, uh, you go in that direction. I mean, you, you never get it to be perfect, perfect. Um, and it would be, be absolutely perfect. You'd have to have a car with the world's greatest downforce so it didn't even move. And obviously the engine to go up here to, to go along with it and so on. Uh, that, I mean, I've never come across that yet, <laughs> but uh, uh, you could. What I have come across, however, is in the early days, we used to have telemetry on the cars, start fitting telemetry, measuring all bits and pieces. We started getting reams of data thrown at us, or idea thrown at well, all the other teams, I suppose, as well, if they were doing data analysis, because it was fairly new. It's all in the sort of 70s. And um, I remember thinking, well, we've got so much information here, I can't absorb it. There's not enough time, because we didn't have a fleet of men, remember? the Me, the designer, engineer, whatever, well, he's the engineer at the race meeting, designer in the week. So you'd be twiddling the knobs. You didn't have a fleet of men. If you were running several cars, like later, years later, like at Lotus, you'd have two people. So I'd be running one car, Colin would be running the other and so on. And you'd have each car would also have an engineer as well. There you could spread it a bit more. You could get one to concentrate on the tyre situation and so on. But uh, I found that, uh, yeah, in the early days, there was too much data coming through from all this analysis that uh, I couldn't absorb it. I just used to select what I wanted. You get so many bits of information about shock absorbers with four settings going up and down there. Then, then you've got, that's just one element. You've then got all the other bits. Have you got the right spring, the bump rubbers, the, the ground cleans, the canvas, and all that. So that you, there's only so many hours available. And a lot of this stuff is either happening during the race or certainly in between racing in the practice, in the practice session. And whilst this is going on, you're going to grab a coffee if you're lucky and, and try and sort of carry on. But that, that's the only... Uh, from I ever came across, uh, there was too much. Nowadays, if you look at a Grand Prix, you've got a fleet of engineers glued, glued to monitors throughout the race. They'll have someone watching the gearbox, someone's watching the you know, gearbox temperature performance, someone's watching the brakes, someone's watching this. And and, you know, and that's all they do. That's their, their reason for living is to study that particular part of the car. And if there's a, a problem, they can immediately tell the boss or chief engineer, and he can make the decision whether to do anything about it or not. So that's, that's how it's evolved. So now they've gone totally overboard. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Before, before we move on to um, take a look at some other highlights of your career, I'm interested to know, how did you get the motor racing bug? How did, how did, how did you first get interested? I mean... Did you have a Scalex trick set like like I did? I, I used to I, I used to play with it all the time. My dad set it up for me in the attic. Did you have one of those? Well, I don't think it existed in my days. I've been around a while. I mean, we're talking back in the fifties. Uh, I remember the first time I went to going to motor racing when I was about 13, 14. Mallory Park, I remember going to, and Silverstone. I went to the race there. Um, I like car uh, race cars because i used to have some race car books here for presents and things and my main interest and hobbies in those early days were either making models you know, model airplanes or model boats and i had an electric train set the big difference was when i started driving 
which is sort of about 16, you're driving dad's car and all that sort of thing, when you're not supposed to, of course, when you'd have a, but there's no traffic on the road in those days, so you'd have a chug up the road and so on. But as soon as I passed my test at uh, uh, 17, which is still 1957, and by then I joined the 750 Motor Club, and because I got the, the motoring bug then, and I uh, sort of went along to their meetings, and it just, that was it, it, was a, it just took off, because they were big into racing, club racing, and I suddenly thought, blimey, and go, go racing on with nothing. Yeah, because they literally went racing with no, no money almost. Uh, and that, that's how it really started. And okay. it just, just went vertical from then. People like Colin Chapman were involved in exactly the same thing at oh, that time. Yeah, identical. Well, Eric Brawley, I went to work when my apprenticeship finished in 61. I went down to see him. And of course, three years before, he'd been a 1172, the 750 Motor Club champion of the 1172 formula, which was like, in the 750 club, the Formula One of their club. And of course, that's what Chapman won, Len Terry won, um, um, Chevron, Derek Bennett. Uh, I think he won the championship. He certainly used to win races. Uh, they're Elva, they all came through that, went through the 750 club. So, apprenticeship. This podcast is supported by Scalextric. Listeners can claim 10% off all Scalextric products by visiting www scalextric.com and using the code RACE10 that's R-A-C-E in capital letters followed by figure 10, RACE10 at checkout this offer is valid until the 30th of September this year and cannot be used in conjunction with any other offer a full list of terms and conditions is available on the Scalextric website in 1976 you actually went to, to work at Lotus, didn't you, with, with Peter Wright, and you, uh, and you worked on the Lotus 78. I wondered how inspirational was that part of your career? And I'm only asking that because there was so much innovation and creativity at Lotus at that time, wasn't there? Uh, Colin lived for that. Um, uh, he, he didn't like, he, he liked trick cars, different cars. You've got to be different. I remember, uh, yeah, I joined him in 76, I think, was it? Lotus owned a pretty lean time. In fact, they weren't even qualifying for some races. In those days, there were more cars than grid position, you may remember. They have, say, 30 cars for 26 places. So four cars, the slowest four in qualifying, were out. And Lotus, I think, on one or two occasions, were out because of the car wasn't competitive and they didn't they didn't have the top drivers then. They were the sort of good drivers, but not the top league. And uh, I was at Shadow, and Shadow... Uh, by then we're going through a bad, bad patch. It's all slowing down and momentum had gone. Money was very scarce. And he offered me a job to go there as chief engineer and resurrect the, the team, supposedly. And so I thought, well, we'll go along. So I went on a short contract, just a 15-month uh, consolidated contract, and when there's the chief engineer there. And uh, so I'd run one car and he would run the other. Because they were at two, you know, engineer. I had Gunnar Nielsen's car, and uh, when I joined, Gunnar Nielsen and Mario joined the team at the same time. So straight away, you got some good drivers. The when I arrived, they had a car seventy. It was called the 76, 70, no, 77. Yeah, 77. 77. Sorry, the seventy-seven, which um, was a very lightweight car, very a bit sort of flimsy. Uh, I was told everything had fallen off it when I arrived. I said, I remember saying that. Nigel Bennett was one of the engineers there. Oh, I know very is a great pal of mine now. He said, uh, and I said, what hasn't fallen off this car? And he said, about three bits. That bit, that bit. I said, better change those. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, he liked innovation. So they, when I got there, they were working on a wing car. They call it was called a wing car. Well, Peter Wright, I knew Peter Wright from BRM days. Because when I joined uh, BRM, uh, there was. Uh, Peter Wright was in charge of the aeronautics side because we were getting into aeronautics and wing yeah. pieces. Only uh, very early stages. But he was a young chap from uh, Cambridge, I think, and he was an aerodynamist. He was only 25. And when I got there, they'd got this wing car, BRM and a wing car. And, but it was very um, different looking, nothing like the Lotus at all. Um, and it didn't look too good to me. And... BRM wanted a car to go out and win a race, go and win, because they were at the back of the grid. They wanted to be at the front. 
I couldn't see this going out. It, it would need a lot of development because it was very, very new technology. And the wind tunnel testing was pretty basic in those days compared to, certainly compared to now. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, froze, I stopped the project. I said, no, we'll make a, what you might call a more conventional car, but more up to date. And that's what the P153 was. And anyway, that did the job because it went out and, and won the, the first year it came out. So that was good. So after that, he left because I was a bit miffed, I suppose, because I had started that project. So when I joined years later, when I joined those, Peter Wright was there. And I remember chatting about the, the, the wing car. And he, he agreed. He said, no, that, that car that we had at VM wouldn't have worked. I said, well, at least I got that right. Uh, but he said, this new one is looking really good. He said, the breakthrough is, because it had wings, uh, wing sections on the side of the car. So did the BRM one. And Jackie Oliver did all the testing. He'd tell you all about it. They had these wing, pro- you know, the sort of wing section they put on the side of the um, uh, March in yeah. 70. They're like these big fiberglass Aeroforce sections on the side of the Formula One car. If you remember, well, that's yeah. a direct, absolute 100% copy of the BRM because that's where uh, they had those on their ordinary car to test it, see if it worked. And we couldn't tell the difference, to be honest. Um, it looked good, but it didn't make any difference. Uh, Oliver thought it was slightly better in the wet, that's all. So we dropped them. But anyway, uh, Peter Wright worked for Peter Jackson, made the body works for Formula One cars in those days, and they made the body for the March. So he incorporated these BRM sort of Aeroforce sections on the side. That's why it looked like that. And I mean, it looked good, it didn't really do much. But the the BRM wing car was very different. It was The whole car was a wing, and it had a little pointed nose and so on, and it didn't have any wings on the back or anything. Um, and, the, and the cooling was in the side of the sort of uh, anyway, Peter agreed that no, that wouldn't work. He said, this new one does look good. And the big difference is that the wings have got end plates on. Because, you know, like, all you see all the wings have end plates. When they first came out, wings didn't have end plates. They were just rounded off like a no- normal aeroplane. And so they started putting these end plates on, and they found as they put bigger and bigger end plates, the downforce went up and up. And they end up, of course, if you have them so big, it touched the ground. And they realized if they could seal seal it, it was phenomenal, but of course you weren't allowed to do that. You couldn't have movable devices. So one of my first big jobs on that car was to try and seal a bloody wing with we put brushes on, all sorts of things, skirts that were like made out of poly, polypropylene that hinged. They were on springs, but they would hinge like that as uh, uh, as the downforce uh, was generated. And that that's how we raced the first year. You remember the '78 when it came out race yeah. line? And that was that was that was pretty good. But then Chapman, of course. Uh, he wanted to be, he's always wanted to be, he loved that wing car because it was totally different from everybody else. And nobody knew why, why it worked. We did, of course, but nobody else did. They couldn't believe it. And uh, so uh, the following year, uh, he, he, it's his idea to come up with some skirts that slid. But because it touched the ground, so it's, it's bloody illegal. If it was illegal, he'd go for it. He said, I'll get them to change the rules somehow. And he, he leaned on the FIA, I don't know how he managed, but by putting this but it looked like a spring from the skirt to the chassis, bolting it like a leaf spring. He says it was part of the chassis. Somehow he taught them into accepting it. And of course, that meant you could have sliding skirts then, and they would just add these three springs each side, and well, he just disappeared. The car, the, the 79 was long gone. I had left it at that stage then. But that was fantastic. But that was a, <laughs> a typical Chapman. But at that same time, I remember one of the races were at. McLaren had just come out with a new car. I think it was the 24. Uh, it's a nice car. It looked like a side radiator, wedgie nose, a bit a very Lotus-ish in layout, but very simple and clean. And we went up to it and looked at it, and it was going quite quick. I said, well, whatever it is, it's working quite well. It was just a nicely made, sturdy car, really. Uh, and he looked at it, and we were in. He, sort of, he, says, he says, if I had to make a car like that, a plain-looking car like that, I'd retire. Because <laughs> it wasn't tricking, it wasn't a trick enough for him, and that's that was Chapman. That's somebody up straight away. Got to be trick, even if it didn't work. Got to have a trick car, and then he worry about it working, trying to make it work afterwards. And if you look at all his, all his cars, were always like that, nearly always. And if they weren't, it was an odd year when he was he didn't have enough time to be you know, working on the race cars. He'd be in the car factory because he he wasn't in the 
The race shop, you didn't see him he'd, he'd very often. He'd appear in the morning, he'd walk right through the old factory in the morning, and then you'd see him about five o'clock, he'd walk back again. So in between, he'd be in the car factory trying to make some money. It's absolutely fascinating, I must say. Fascinating insight, that. Um, well, there's a million stories from Lotus. You just you, did, you haven't got time for those. <laughs> and they're all true. And they're all true. <laughs> I wish we did have time. I wish we had time today. But I, I wanted to. There are some other things I wanted to talk to you about. In particular, coming back to drivers, because with Shadow in 1974, you won the Can-Am Championship. Jackie Oliver driving the car. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he had this extraordinary rivalry with George Fulmer, didn't he? Yeah. They, yeah I mean, when I say extraordinary, I, I think it, they they virtually came to blows a couple of times. Um, t- t- can you tell me about that year? Um, the car the car was incredible. Um, they won race after race after race. What, what was the dynamic like in the team with Jackie and George and you uh, as the, as a designer? I didn't go to the races very often then. We had a, we had a big fact, a business, a factory in uh, in Chicago where the, the Canon Coal uh, worked from, operated from. And uh, the operation was run uh, by Mike Hillman. He was like the team manager. Donald's, of course, always around. And they're, they're an engine department there. They were doing the engine. All the initial running of the car, because the car was obviously made here, made in Northampton here, Interesting about that car, it was one of the early cars where it was spent all its life in a wind tunnel. The, the BRM spent a lot of time in a wind tunnel. That's where I started going big into wind tunnels. DN4, that particular car, and the, the previous car, the DN2, a lot of wind tunnel testing to arrive at that shit. DN2 was the same as the DN4 car that won in uh, one uh, Canal Championship, only it was much bigger. It was a an unfortunate car. It was one that Don and the sponsors wanted me to create and i wasn't too enthusiastic because they say we've got a turbocharged we want a turbocharged chevy eight liter chevy and we're doing it already and it's gonna have 1250 horsepower and a thousand foot pounds of torque i said if you've got an engine with that thousand foot pounds of torque and 1200 horsepower there isn't a transmission or brakes that will either transmit it or stop it uh, but anyway they said no that's it so they insisted it's going to, well, they wanted that. So I said, well, what's the fuel consumption? Straight away, it did 1.2 to the gallon. Can of race, you needed some ridiculous, like about 120 gallon fuel tank. Uh, then you needed massive, because it's turbocharged, you needed much bigger brakes to stop the damn thing. So it had to have massive big brakes. So you had quite big wheels, not little wheels, and so on and so on. And the old car was massive, and I hated it. Uh, it looked at a glance all right. Uh, and it didn't work. The engine blew up all the time, and they spent most time running it without the turbos on. So it, it, it wasn't much good. And so at the end of the year, I said, well, now you need to do it properly. What you do, you just have a regular 8-litre uh, Chevy engine. Uh, the car scaled down about 7-8 scale, so it's in the right proportion. And you can go, yes, we can have some small wheels on the front. We can get right down to the weight limit. A much more compact car, and so on and so on, and uh, a bit more wind tunnel testing. Uh, although the car still looked really similar, actually, and uh, that's what we did. And the car, it worked very well. It was great, and we did the testing in the UK and whatever. It was all working fine. The drive, so they just sent it, shipped her off, and got on with it, and it just worked. Did you? Um, so it was quite easy. <laughs> did. Did you hear about the rivalry between oh, yes. and Fulmer? I mean, oh, yes, yes. Oh, it was yeah. pretty, pretty intense, wasn't it? Well, don't forget, they were, the, they were the Formula 1 team as well. So I would be doing the Formula 1, concentrating on the Formula 1, so I'd be engineering both of them in the Formula 1 cars. Uh, but uh, Mike, Mike Hillman, will be doing that in, uh, in, in the States with the Can-Am car. 1973, we had the, the, both Fulmer and Oliver driving Formula 1. But the rivalry, of course, was massive then. Because Foreman never done Form One, uh, and he was brought in, and not many people realise he's he's not a technical driver. He just got in it and booted it, like a lot of Americans. They're very brave, what I call brave. They're sort of, sort of gutsy and brave, and uh, and go for it. Uh, but they're not 
that sophisticated. Not uh, well, they are now because in those days it's a bit more basic because a lot of them came from dirt track racing and that ovals and all that sort of stuff. Dirt ovals. So it's like uh, get the tail out and boot it, and and if you were brave, you won the race sort of thing. But I remember we went to the first race, which is South Africa with the DM1. Uh, this is the first Shadow Form 1 car. And Fulman, never been in a Form 1 race in his life, came sixth. Simply because he kept going. He kept in one piece and kept going. Uh, not super quick, but he was there. He was sixth at the end. Well, now that he's sixth, he's quite a good, good place. Uh, Oliver retired. Next race was the Spanish Grand Prix, the one around the circuit of Barcelona. No, the one was street circuit. Mondrich. That's it. That's the one. I can never remember that. And and blow me, George Former came third. He, so in his second race, he came third in a Grand Prix, which is amazing. Well, of course, that really peed Oliver off, as you can imagine, because Ollie never came third <laughs> or anything. So, yeah, there was a lot of rivalry, and uh, and they were neck and neck, of course, in the, in the Can-Am, and uh, they obviously just didn't get on. Uh, I found George very easygoing. Uh, well, typical fun, fun American, really. Non-technical though, non—not he wouldn't push it hard. He just tend to get in. I think basically he's on such a learning curve that he was learning all the time anyway, and he, I could dial it into to suit what he wanted. Well, while we're on the subject of Formula One, we have to talk about arrows because uh, famously at the time, the first arrows Formula One car, the FA One, everyone. The first, when everyone saw it the first time, they said, well, Shadow DN9, it's, it's just a copy. And this got, this got into a horrible legal situation, to cut a very long story short. Was it a copy of the DN9? Well, not a copy. As I've said many times, on the Friday, I'd finished the DN9. It was, the car was about 95% finished, actually, uh, in the workshop. Uh, and then there was a big bust-up. Uh, we all went down the road and started a new team. And so on the Monday, I was drawing another car, another Formula 1 car, exactly the same uh, formula, because obviously you don't change your mind. I mean, after you're doing a little wind tunnel testing, God knows what, and you worked out what geometry you want, you don't suddenly throw it all away and start again. You'd be an idiot to do that. So obviously the car, the same, exactly the same layout, same configuration. It was a little neater and smarter than the DN9, it had a better nose and nose view. I wasn't quite happy. The radiator treatment at the front, that came out a little better. And it was a bit clean around the tail. These are just aerodynamic things. Uh, the rest of it is pretty much the same. And uh, well, the big problem was that uh, Jackie Oliver tried to buy out or buy into Shadow. And Don wouldn't release anyone because he owned it 100%. And he didn't want uh, anyone else to be involved. At the time, I wasn't aware of that. but if he'd have said, well, okay, Ollie, you can have 10%, 20% or whatever of the, of the operation to keep him involved, uh, that'd be fine. But obviously, he wasn't prepared to give me anything. So Ollie was quite reasonably good at then at getting sponsorship, and he got some money lined up. So he thought, well, bugger it, we'll go down the road and start our own team. And that's how it started. And the result is that the, the, the FA1, as it was called, Franco Ambrosio, because Ambrosio coughed up with the money. He was an, a crook, as you may remember. Anyway, he, he coughed up with the money, and we built this car super quick, and it actually got to the racetrack before the DN9 did, uh, which didn't go down very well with Don Nichols, as you can imagine. So uh, from then on, he hated Oliver. He didn't seem to hate us, because, I mean, he was friendly with me for the rest of my well, his days. I mean, we were still talking 18 months before he died. He wanted me to design a bloody road car for him. I said, don't be ridiculous. We've left it far too late for that. But anyway, he was always interested. He, he wanted a team in America. Uh, when I was working for Ferrari, he wanted to get some Ferraris and, and wanted me to be involved with the team, running the team and all that sort of thing. But So we were still quite friendly, but he hated Oliver because Oliver tried to take his shadow away. And he was going for Oliver, and to do it, he sued uh, Arrows. And, uh, well, we know the full car. I mean, they, they couldn't win because, I mean, the car was basically uh, a DN. Uh, it wasn't literally the same bits, but they were like a copy of the bits. But the interesting thing was uh, on copyright, they only got fined £1,000 because in motor racing, in, certainly in Formula 1, uh, copyright didn't work because copyright only works if you're selling something and they weren't selling anything. I mean, if you sell 
uh, replicas and make money, obviously you could be sued then because that's a copy of my so-and-so. But they weren't selling anything. So what what happened was that, uh, as their, their lawyer argued, that if ours hadn't been on the grid, Shadow would have been further up the grid because there'd be one team ahead. And, of course, in those days, uh, the grid position dictated how much money you got from uh, FOCA and also what tyres you got. So that, that was quite important. And Harrods are fined 25,000 quid. Um, well, first of all, they're fined actually 13,000 pounds, 12,000 for uh, the losing out on the grid position and 1,000 for copyright. And they, they, uh, uh, they then, uh, their lawyers uh, protest, they didn't reckon that. So, so the judge then doubled it to 25, which was nothing, peanuts, because the legal bill was 10 times that. So that 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 uh, so all that did was to bugger up both teams. It should never have happened. No, it was a big distraction too for everybody, wasn't it? Um, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, well, look, um, Tony it up for me, that's sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, did did you were were you concerned that your reputation was also at stake there? Or I mean, because it was it it, it got quite controversial and quite nasty, didn't it? Oh yeah, they got uh, the court. Okay, it was very nasty. Uh, obviously, um, uh, it affected. In some ways, it was good, funny enough, because what happened not long after Arrows, after three years, uh, there was a bust up between me and Oliver. So I ended up out of the Arrows team. And so I then I did a little bit of work just for Teddy Yip as a, a stopgap, uh, which did actually produce a couple of little cars for him, which worked quite well because it was a very limited budget team. Uh, but then I went to Ford and started doing sports cars and rally cars and things. I did do a, a thing for our seller years later, but uh, I went to what you might call the sports car route, which was uh, in many ways uh, better because, one, I got more pay, which is good, a lot more money, and you're working with names, you know, Ford, uh, Jaguar or Ferrari and people like that, uh, which is uh, Audi in then, which is much more better for the CV than uh, someone like, say, Arrows. Well, okay. We're, so that's why right. it worked better. But the, the, from the Formula 1 point of view, I suppose it, it put a damper on it. We've absolutely got to talk about your work at Jaguar. Um, if only, I mean, if for any other, for no other reason than that you won Le Mans twice and you won the World Sports Car Championship twice, which is a pretty major achievement, let's face it. What was it like working for Tom Walkinshaw? and TWR at the beginning um, with the Jaguar. Were you given a completely free reign on the on the engineering side? When uh, I went along to see Tom, uh, when they offered me the job, which I took about a tenth of a second to accept, <laughs> when they offered me the job, do you want to design the new Jaguar Lamar cast? Yes. Because <laughs> I knew that was going to be a good one, a, a good big project. Um, he, he said to me, you can do whatever you like, long as you use the Jaguar V12 engine. They were producing a race, because they had the, they were racing the saloon cars, remember, with the, the V12. So they already got a race engine, not the Le Mans spec, but he was that direction. And uh, he said, long as you use that engine, you can do what you like. And that was it. Didn't it he said, I like, and he just said, I'd like it to be modern. Well, obviously it's going to be modern, but he meant by that, like carbon fiber and lots of aero and stuff. And that, that was it. But that period, the Jaguar period for me, uh, was the my best, most enjoyable of motor racing ever I did. And uh, it was quite long. It was about six years or so. I had no trouble with Tom, working with Tom. I found him really, he was a racer himself. So long as you sort of came up with the goods, you were okay. Uh, if you didn't, it might have been difficult, but we were always fortunately quick enough to be, well, it's good. The car was always quick enough to be uh, on, the, on the good side. So, uh, yeah, I loved it. I loved it. Really good. You and uh, the, the, the car, ended, I mean, the engine uh, ended up a, a full race version of the B12, um, and it was semi-stressed and all that sort of thing, so it was all quite modern. Um, I mean, it was a big lump, but difficult to manage because it was so heavy and big. It's the biggest engine I've ever seen. When I came across it, I thought, oh, what do we do with this? Um, but it just, well, I recessed it right in, right next to the driver to get the weight forward and so on. 
and we made this very flat sump arrangement to get it as low as possible and so on. And eventually it all worked. We had teething problems like you do with those sort of big projects. But, uh, I mean, we always had the dreaded transmission, but Le Mans, for me, has always been a transmission nightmare because the gearboxes are never... It wasn't until we got the pneumatic shifting, which is as with Audi in Germany, that came about. The uh, Some land popped in the door. He got this thing there. He, he concocted the motorbikes. He said, is it any good for you? I said, that looks interesting. <laughs> we put it on the car and it was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I loved the, uh, the GWR period. That was great. Yeah. I'd have liked to have spent my end of my days there, but... Uh, as you know, Tom went bust because at the end in the GT era, I rejoined uh, TWR for we did a project with Nissan, a Le Mans car. It's a GT car, not a uh, race car. Well, they're all race cars, but they were not uh, prototypes. They were GTs, and uh, unfortunately, uh, they ran out of money. And we had super team uh, over in Chipping uh, Norton there, and we had to fold the whole team up, and everyone was laid off including myself. Tom didn't want to do it. just got no money. It was skint. Nobody would take over because we had about 45, 47 people, really good people, good facilities, a, new, a brand new design in existence, but no money. <laughs> yeah. So that took care of that. So I wanted to spend my day, the rest of my days there until I fizzled out and I had to go and get another job. You worked with some great drivers during that period. Um, oh, yes. Now you're working with two drivers in one car, um, as opposed to an individual Formula One driver. Did you find it quite easy to adapt to that? How how helpful or not were they? Maybe you could give me some examples of the of the guys you worked with and and uh, how they were how they approached the Le Mans project with you. Uh, well, say you take eighty uh, eight, which is uh, a year we won because we had it was three years before we won it. Um, uh, we had. Five cars, three drivers in each. So we had 15 drivers. 15. Well, that's a, that's half my best part of a four and one grid. And, uh, but with each car, I mean, the, the cars were identical. Uh, there's there no difference. They were set up. I mean, give you an idea on the way to the Le Mans, all the cars would go to Myra, you know, the road test track near uh, Nuneaton, uh, put them in a full size wind tunnel. And we'd set them up so that both, all the cars had the same drag, you know, just because there's always a slight difference between one car and not much, uh, you know, one degree on a flap and all that sort of thing. So we jiggle it out so exactly the same. So theoretically, they'd all go down the straight, same speed, assuming the engines were the same. And so they all had the same equipment. But of course, when it came to the drivers, there was like a number one, two, and three. It's inevitable. You know, uh, Tom, he, he liked his drivers. And so Brundle was his star. The star driver, so he had that. He was in you know, that car, and basically the other two drivers had to drive what he he set up. If he liked the car very pointy, which he did, John Watson, who was in number two, didn't like a pointy car. He wanted one that understeered, but it was hard luck for John Watson. Unfortunately, it was a bit like that. But generally speaking, they were all okay. The drivers, and we had a massive array of drivers over the years, and uh, they, there was no real big problem, except for the lead driver would tend to dominate, or in the case of the car that won in 88, which was the, the young drivers, that was Lammers, Wallace, and um, Dumfries. They were the mad youth, you could say. All of a sudden, when it got to the race, they got very serious, all three of them. And Lammers realized they, they were they were running good, and they looked good. They thought, we've got to do this right. So he starts dictating to the other drivers how to drive, you know, what to do, and not don't go crashing over the curves and all that sort of rubbish and stuff of thing. And he 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 kept a kept the uh, uh, a lot of pressure on them to drive properly rather than recklessly. And because uh, 24 hours, lots of things can happen with a Le Mans car. They don't just go round and round. They end up going over curves, over halfway down ditches, and all sorts of stuff. I mean, I got a photograph of the winning car, 88 car, when uh, what, Dumfries, he got to the first chicane and, and he missed it. So he went over it and they've got a car, a picture of the car, and it's, it's got about a foot of clearance on the car. He's going over the curb at the chicane like that. Yeah, really bang, bang, crash down, bang, bang, and carrying on. Well, of course, Le Mans, the cars are built to do that. 
You don't want the drivers to do it, but they have to be. It gave you main flimsy, all the bits would fall off. So even with the, the, the year they won, there were some tricky moments. But um, they tended to sort of lean to the, the senior driver and set it up for him, and uh, that was it, really. The other ones tended to go along with it. But we did go to a race where Brundle wasn't in the car. He swapped cars, and... John Watson was the, the lead driver. And so I dialed in a bit more to suit him. And he was suddenly the quickest driver of all our lot. Going like mad he was, really quick. And I remember after I say, you were really good at it. I said, well, the car was set up for me, wasn't it? Yeah, and that was it. Which it must have pissed him off when he was you know, driving and it's say it's a bit pointy when he wanted the opposite. That, that's very enlightening, isn't it, though? Bearing in mind we're talking about we're doing an engineering the greats uh, podcast series because that just shows you the, the the immediate connection between people like you and people like them that, that can, can make a real difference to their performance. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it works both ways, doesn't it? Obviously, if, if the car works well, it reflects on the designer engineers, uh, and and of course uh, it, the driver wins a race, and that's what he's doing it for. So I don't know what it's like in modern Formula 1, but they still do the adjustments like everyone else. It's just that they get a bit more fanatical about I mean, tyre presses are ridiculous. Why is it tenth of a pound and all that sort of thing? Uh, in my day, I mean, you just went up and down a pound, bug it around. <laughs> Can we talk briefly about the Ford rally car? Because now, yes. now this, is, this is yet another completely different discipline. And you've already spent decades, you know, creating and engineering these amazing cars and now now they now Ford want you to do a rally car it was quite a big challenge uh, well I first joined Ford to do a Le Mans car uh, the Mark 3 uh, C100 it was called and uh, which benefited the Jaguar in fact because it was the forerunner the James it only wasn't carbon fiber uh, and that was a nice project it, it worked out well all looking really good we did it Thousand kilometre testing, uh, no real problems, a couple of little minor things. And uh, then Ford's scrapped it because it, by then they got a new competition manager, which is uh, Mike uh, Turner. And he uh, he was pro rally and wasn't too keen on Le Mans. So uh, uh, they scrapped it. And then uh, a few weeks later, after various consultations, they, uh, uh, they said, Do you want to design a uh, Group B rally car. I said, well, I don't know much about rally, but I said, we'll have a go. Let's see. And so uh, I went down to Boreham. We went around a test track at Cobham, I think it was, uh, in one of their current rally cars. It was an escort of some sort with their chief engineer at the wheel. He was obviously a frustrated uh, rally driver. And we went around this track for about three laps. At the end of it, I was exhausted. I mean, it was crashing around and banging up and down, hitting the ground. The noise was phenomenal. The seatbelts were almost cutting my shoulders off. And I got out he said, if you do three laps around it, it's pretty damn good for a rally car. <laughs> so, he said, you've got to be able to do about 12 laps around here. If he doesn't fall a bit, she can win a rally. So uh, it was just to give me a, a feel. I said, okay. So I thought, well, we don't want it too flimsy then. And so I did a, a layout. Uh, and eventually they said, well, it's all a bit too wet. It's a bit Formula 1-ish. We compromised and ended up doing a, a, a more sturdier, simpler version. They said things like they want to be able to change the gearbox in nine minutes and upright in four and a half minutes and all that sort of thing. And and one of the, one of the uh, requests was, could you just use one size nut and bolt? <laughs> I said, well, throughout the car. <laughs> and they were using like, seven sixteenths bolt size which i've never even used a bolt that size uh, they're all like yes you know, five or six of the biggest at uh, or four so uh, anyway we ended up making a, a honeycomb monocoque structure which they were very anti fords were only into spot welded steel so i had to prove i had to make a, a section of the car prove how strong it was we put it in the press and compared it with the steel of course it was umpteen times better than the steel. And so they had a bit of iron. And thought, oh, that's, that's his right press. It does. It's okay. So we made a nice uh, structure there, uh, which is good. And they, 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 they said you can do what you like, incidentally. They said, uh, they said, we, only, they said we've got a load of Hewlin gears. <laughs> you can use some <laughs> Hewlin internal. Uh, 
a gearbox or something. Um, so, okay, let's see. So, uh, uh, one compromise I did do, and I think it's correct anyway. The chief engineer at Boreham when I was there, he, he was fanatical about weight distribution because I added the weight, I had a bit heavier on the rear than the front. And he said, it's got to be 50 50 rally car because these are they're used to front engine rally cars, which generally are about 50 50 weight distribution. Oh. And uh, he, he was terrified if we had one that's sort of 45 or something, he'd be understeering off the road. And so after much discussion, uh, I said, okay, I'll go along with that then, because he was the got much more experience. I said, I'll go along with that and we'll put a bit more weight on the front. And we ended up putting the gearbox at the front. I wasn't too keen on that because you've got to have a drive shaft going forward and a drive shaft coming back. So the place is crawling with drive shafts, prop shafts, rather. And uh, anyway, uh, we went that route and put the gearbox at the front. And uh, I was quite happy with it. In the end, I thought it was definitely right because wet distribution came out very nice. So that that was a, sort of the only compromise that I made. The rest of it, I packaging, the length and all that was just as I drew the car. And the, it had a very short nose and a very short tail, just drew it like literally drew a line, said, right, that's it. It's got to be within that package. And the roof is this high. I used lots of Ford production bits, like the, the door is a, a Sierra, because the Sierra had just come out then. I took a Sierra door, just chopped, I can't remember, six inches or nine inches off the bottom, and obviously made a, a fiberglass version of it. And that was the door. So it means you can use all the all the window mechanisms and door opening mechanisms, which are plain in the neck. I used the Sierra windscreen and all the wiper mechanism and the little bit that goes around it because you don't want to get it in to make it those things. It's a nice shape. And the top of the roof, the first part of the roof would be Sierra. Then it could be tailed off the same. So that centre bit was almost like Sierra, the windscreen and all the door, what have you. And then uh, gear in Italy then styled the nose and the tail, and we had to sort of flip up tail, try and get some downforce and a shovely nose. And uh, I went over to Gears when they were doing it, which is quite interesting experience seeing them do it. And and that was it. It went in the wind tunnel afterwards. It did produce downforce, not much, about 120 pounds, I think, downforce. But most cars produced lift, produced lift. So that's right. that was useful. And the car, well, it had lots of suspension, eight inches of wheel movement, double shocks all round. Um, which is packaging was a bit tricky. And of course, it had a mid-engined turbocharged engine, which had to drive forward to the gearbox and drive back to the back axle. But they thought there'd be a lot of problems with that. And I said, well, I'm not sure. I think it'll be okay. But I know Ford engine as well, or the inertia of the prop shafts and all this, uh, we won't be able to change gear. In actual fact, uh, the only thing I noticed uh, was, because the, the gearbox was rubber mounted, as, as you change gear, the, the gear lever moved because obviously the, as you drove, the drive going through the, the gearbox moved the rubber bushings. And so I remember in the car, it's funny, the gear lever was moving like this. It's the only thing I considered. <laughs> but we, and we did a test at uh, uh, Myra, ran all the circuit there, this on the road circuit. And Jackie Stewart was doing the driving and I was sitting next to him and he, and he went whizzing around because he had to test all the cars before. So he went whizzing around that, which is quite a good experience. Getting these comments, oh, it's very nice, very nice. It handles quite nice, and that's why it handled very well for that type of car. And, and of course, you've got the challenge. You've got to, it's got to work in the snow, gravel, sand, tarmac. So we had double suspension points, so you could lift the car up or down. If you're on a, a, a tarmac like racetrack area, you could drop the car. The whole car would come down. I mean, wheels from this narrow to this, and you've got to make it all work, which is quite a challenge. And uh, anyway, it all worked, and the drivers were quite complimentary, actually. The only snag is, of course, by the time you had to make 200 of the damn things, 200. Um, and we ended up going to Reliance to get them to make the bodywork. They were making fiberglass much better than anyone else. They were like, you know, Lotus went off and did their injection molding bodywork, which is fine, but it's a bit trick, and it took a long time for them to perfect it. But what uh, Reliant did, they just had a press, like like two halves. You put the, laid the fire, uh, fiberglass in, put the two parts of the mold together, heated it up, and two minutes later, you opened it up, and out came a bit of very hot fiberglass, shiny both sides. So it didn't look like fiberglass. It just looked like a shiny bit of plastic. 
And they thought that was, Ford thought that was pretty impressive. That, so they got them to make the bodywork. That was the idea. Actually, it was an interesting project. I was on that, for, that I spent more time on that car, the uh, RS200, than any other car ever in my career. Because well, it's, it's a big project. I don't know how we could possibly cover your career in <laughs> such a short time, and we haven't. But you've been incredibly entertaining and informative, and thank you so much for taking part. And a big thank you, too, to Scalextric for supporting our Motorsport Engineering the Greats series. Tony, just to say thank you very much. Well done. I uh, wish we had more time, but we've done, well, I don't know, an hour and 20. You'll probably need a cup of tea. Yes, I do. Yeah. It is tea time. It is tea time. Exactly. Thank you so much. I'm sorry. That, I'm sorry we've only scratched the surface, but hey, I mean, what? How do you do five decades in? Yeah, a bit tricky, that. <laughs> anyway, it's okay. That's that's fine. It's fine. Thank you, Tony, very much. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Experience the thrill of the race with Scalextric, proud sponsors of the Motorsport Podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.